The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Okay, um, earlier Bob read the 90th Psalm. Some of you weren't here yet, and uh, that's the oldest Psalm in the Bible written by Moses. And then we come into the 91st Psalm next. Does anybody know uh, what they call the 91st Psalm? The Warrior Psalm. Yeah, as a matter of fact, when the Gulf War started in 1991, happened to match the the, uh, year with what occurred. And so a lot of the warriors were using this as their Psalm out in the battlefield. Psalm 91 says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the Most High your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you nor shall any plague come near your dwellings. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Beautiful words. Beautiful. Okay, we've got an entire chapter to get through today. Um, It's Leviticus chapter 6, verses 1 through 30. I haven't done 30 verses in, uh, you know, there are times where we'll do two verses and in a whole sermon, but uh, we've covered a great deal of this already. This is kind of a repetition in some areas of previous sacrifices and offerings, and um, so it's surprising that we have so many verses, but we'll get through it. I'm going to leave out most of the pictures of Christ that we normally get into and the details and the meaning of individual words simply because as I said, we've seen them already. So don't be disappointed. There's a lot of information in the 30 verses. And um, if you haven't been following these sermons, then you're going to have a headache when you leave. But just absorb one or two things like you would in any sermon and you'll be fine. And then uh, in the future, if you ever get to this passage and you say, what was that? Why was that there? Just go back and review. But um, Leviticus 6, 1 through 30, it's the mediator's duties, part one. So we're going to read the Verses first, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If a person sins and commits a trespass against the Lord by lying to his neighbor about what was delivered to him for safekeeping, or about a pledge, or about a robbery, or if he has extorted from his neighbor, or if he has found what was lost and lies concerning it, 
and swears falsely, in any one of these things that a man may do in which he sins, then it shall be because he has sinned and is guilty that he shall restore what was what he has stolen or the thing which he has extorted or what was delivered to him for safekeeping or the lost thing which he found or all that about which he has sworn falsely. He shall restore its full value, add one fifth more to it and give it to whomever it belongs on the day of his trespass offering. And he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord, a ram without blemish from the flock, with your valuation as a trespass offering to the priest. So the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any one of these things that he may have done in which he trespasses. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his son, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth upon the altar all night until morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and his linen trousers. He shall put on his body and take up the ashes of the burnt offering, which the fire is consumed on the altar. And he shall put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments, put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. And the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not be put out. Then the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order on it. And he shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. A fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. This is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it on the altar before the Lord. He shall take from it his hand of fine flour of the grain offering with its oil and all the frankincense which is on the grain offering and shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma as a memorial to the Lord. And the remainder of it Aaron and his sons shall eat. With unleavened bread, it shall be eaten in a holy place in the court of the tabernacle of meeting. They shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my offerings made by fire. It is most holy, like the sin offering and the trespass offering. All the males among the children of Aaron may eat it. It shall be a statute forever in your generations concerning the offerings made by fire to the Lord. Everyone who touches them must be holy. Verse 19, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, this is the offering of Aaron and his sons, which they shall offer to the Lord, beginning on the day when he is instructed one-tenth of an ephah of fine flowers, a daily grain offering, half of it in the morning and half of it at night. It shall be made in a pan with oil. When it is mixed, you shall bring it in. The baked pieces of the grain offering you shall offer for a sweet aroma to the Lord. The priest from among his sons, who is anointed in his place, shall offer it. It is a statute forever to the Lord. It shall be wholly burned. For every grain offering for the priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. Verse 24, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his son, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, the sin offering shall be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten. In the court of the tabernacle of meeting, Everyone who touches its flesh must be holy, and when its blood is sprinkled on any garment, you shall wash that on which it was sprinkled in a holy place. But the earthen vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken, and if it is boiled in a bronze pot, it shall be both scoured and rinsed in water. All the males among the priests may eat it. It is most holy. But no sin offering from which any of the blood is brought into the tabernacle of meeting to make atonement in the holy place shall be eaten. It shall be burned in the fire. The book of Leviticus gives lots and lots and lots of rules for the priest to follow. 
And when speaking of the duties of the high priest, it will often note that the same duties will devolve to the next high priest who is anointed to assume the duties of the previous high priest. What is implied there is that the high priest was limited to a certain term, which was due to end at his death. As this is the case, then it tells us that the high priest was not immune from death, nor would he ever be capable of being immune from it. If it was possible, then the Bible would have said as much. But in the speaking of the ordination and carrying on of the duties of the high priest by another generation, the implication is that death was a certainty. As the Bible clearly shows from its first pages that death is the result of sin, then we can easily deduce that the law could not cure this problem. If the law is the super-duper thing that Israel, even Israel of today, seems to think it is, then the law would be able to take care of the whole I'm destined to die thing. But nobody ever talks about being exempt from death because of the law. Christians, on the other hand, talk about it all the time, don't we? While at the same time as expecting our end because of inevitable death, Christians also have the hope of actually never tasting death. If that is available to Christians, and it is because of our hope called the rapture, then it means that the sin-generated death problem is already fixed. The plan has just not yet been fully put into place. Our text first comes from Hebrews chapter 7. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, speaking of Jesus Christ, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. God did something marvelous in Jesus Christ. He fixed the death problem for us by having someone die who could not stay dead. Think about that for a moment. When someone offered a sacrifice for sin in Israel, the priest would eat of that person's sacrifice because he was bearing the sin of that person as the mediator between him and God. However, when a priest sacrificed for himself, he could not eat of the sacrifice because it would be as if he was taking his sin back upon himself. But in Christ, we have a high priest who is always alive. He died for our sin, but not for his own. There was no sin that could come back to him. And so for us, there is now no sin that can come back on us as well. The sinless one, Jesus Christ, in him there is a mediating for his people, bearing their sins, but not facing death because of his own sins. The law which stood opposed to us was nailed to his cross. It died with him. And so now we can live to God through Christ. It really is an amazing thing which God has done for us. As we go through these many verses today, think about the symbolism as it looks forward to Christ. Some of it will be explained, some of it will be re-explained, and some of it should be well known enough to you already that it does not need to be re-explained. But it is all about Jesus, and it is all to be found in his superior word. And so, let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have four thoughts for you today. The first is a trespass against the Lord. It's verses one through seven. Verse one, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, these words were last seen in Leviticus five, verse 14. They are brought in now to signify a new train of thought is being introduced. 
The previous section dealt with the holy things to the Lord, such as tithing and like that. This now deals with offenses against one's neighbor. Something you should know is that the division of the Hebrew Bible is different than how we divide it. Charles Ellicott explains this for us, and it is well worth remembering. Here's what he says. It is repeatedly stated in some of our best commentaries that Leviticus 6, 1 through 7 form part of Leviticus 5 in the Hebrew Bible, and that our translators unfortunately adopted the division of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, okay, instead of following the Hebrew. Nothing can be more erroneous than this statement. The Hebrew scriptures in manuscripts have no divisions into chapters at all. The text is divided into sections. They call them parsha, all right, of which there are no less than 669 in the Pentateuch. The book of Leviticus has 98 of these sections, while in our authorized version, it has only 27 chapters. The divisions into chapters now to be found in the Hebrew Bibles were adopted in the 14th century by Jews from the Christians for polemical purposes, and the figures attached to each are of still a later period. In other words, the Jews of the 14th century illogically divided the scriptures as a means of attacking the divisions of the Christian Bible. But the Christian Bible follows the divisions of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which predates even the coming of Jesus Christ. The words of this first verse of chapter 6 show us that this is an entirely separate thought from that of verse 514, and therefore the new chapter division is appropriate. Verse 2, if a person sins and commits a trespass against the Lord. The same word, ma'al, which was introduced into the Bible in verse 515 last week is used here again. It indicates committing a trespass or dealing treacherously with someone. In both verses, it is called a trespass against the Lord. Even though this is an offense against the neighbor, the idea is that when someone defrauds or steals from a neighbor, it subverts social life. As the social life of the Israelites is established by God in his law over them, then to act against a neighbor is to insult God. Thus, the sin against the Lord is evident, even if it is his neighbor who has been violated. Verse 2 continues, By lying to his neighbor about what was delivered to him for safekeeping, or about a pledge, or about a robbery, or if he has extorted from his neighbor. The word for lying here is kachash. It's only been used once once so far in the Bible, and that was in Genesis 18, verse 15, when Sarah denied that she laughed when the Lord said that she would bear a child. It is a lie of denial or of deception. This lying is said to be to the person's amit, or neighbor. This is a new word in Scripture, which will be found only in the book of Leviticus, with but one exception, which is in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. It gives the sense of an associate or a companion. Each of the things which involve lying to the neighbor are based on very rare Hebrew words or words which are introduced now for the first time or even the only time in all of Scripture. The words then, like those of any judicial instruction, are specific and they're precise. When one listens to a court proceeding, they may hear words which they have never heard before, but the law carries the need for precision, which is often meant to explain the regular evil doing of man in a way which intimately describes the actions he is involved in. If you ever watched Perry Mason when you were young, or maybe you were a little older, but whatever, if you watched him, they used words that you may have never heard before. The idea is here in the book of Leviticus. 
What is being relayed in this verse concerns the normal way that things were done in Israel. If a person was going on a journey, perhaps, they would need their things taken care of while gone. Suppose they had animals which needed to be tended to. They would be given over as a picadon or a deposit. The intent was that the thing would be kept safe for that individual. The next example might be something precious which needed to be kept. The term is bitsumet yad, or security in hand. This would be something small and precious, like money or jewelry. It would be handed to another for safekeeping. This is an offense which has already been explained, at least in part, in Exodus 22. Here's what it said there. If a man delivers to his neighbor money or articles to keep, and it is stolen out of the man's house, if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, then the master of the house shall be brought into the judges to see whether he has put his hand into his neighbor's goods. The third example is of a gazelle, or robbery. It is something taken by violence. And the final example is that of a shock. This is extortion, or taking through oppression. Each of these was wrongdoing against one's neighbor, but it is an offense within society, and thus it is an offense against God. Each of you should think about that. If you're going to offend your neighbor in some way, listen, God establishes all nations for his sovereign purposes, and he is watching over even our relationships with our neighbor. That's the point that's being made. Verse 3, or if he has found what was lost in lies concerning it. This is a fifth thing which falls under the same major category, finding something which was lost by another and then lying concerning it. Exodus 23 verse 4 specifically speaks of an enemy's ox going astray which is found by someone. Even in such an instance as that, they were to acknowledge that thing which they found and return it to its rightful owner. Thus, the enemy of Exodus 23 verse 4 must be considered as the amit or the neighbor of this verse for the sake of the law. Verse 3 continues and swears falsely in any one of the things that a man may do in which he sins. The swearing falsely here covers all of the previous five categories. One may lie about a deposit, a pledge in hand, about robbery, extortion, or finding something which didn't belong to him. Each of the categories against another man unites into the one idea of it being sin against God. The question we should stop and ask ourselves at this point is, have we ever done any such thing? Even if the answer is no, we've probably thought of doing something like that one or more times. The law is intended to bring out of us a sense of the state of wrongdoing that exists deep in the human soul. Verse 4, Then it shall be, because he has sinned and is guilty, that he shall restore what he has stolen, or the thing which he has extorted, or what was delivered to him for safekeeping, or the lost thing which he found. The idea here is that the person willingly admits his guilt through a sense of remorse or a nagging conscience. It is not to include being caught and being convicted without a confession. This is certain because the penalty which is imposed in the next verse. For someone who is guilty without confession, the penalty has already been established in the earlier Exodus verses that we looked at, one of which I cited just a moment ago. For this, the first thing he is to do is to restore the thing which was involved in the offense. Verse 5, Or all that about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore its full value, add one-fifth more to it, and give it to whomever it belongs on the day of his trespass offering. The person who was defrauded is to receive the restoration and accept one-fifth of the value added to it by the offender. What is implied is that it is to be accepted. There's nothing stating that he has either a right to deny it or to request more. 
the matter is to be considered as settled. How unlike America, where we can sue somebody out of their living and out of their existence over something very small, right? This actually protected the people. When you look at it from this viewpoint, it is as much of a protection for the one who is trying to make things right as it is for the person who was defrauded in the first place. From here, he is then also to give his trespass offering. The two were to occur immediately, one after the other. The restitution to the aggrieved party was not considered sufficient for the offense. A trespass offering was required as well. It was to be a sign of sorrow for his transgression against another, against society, and against his God. The penalty of this offering and its accompanying ritual are the same as for the offenses noted in chapter 5, as we'll see next. Verse 6, And he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord, a ram without blemish from the flock, with your valuation as a trespass offering to the priest. The difference between this trespass and one directly against the Lord is that the one who is offended receives the additional one-fifth value for the wrong that was done towards him. Whereas in an offense against the holy things of the Lord, the one-fifth value was given to the priest. Other than that, the same ram is required. Verse 7, So the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any one of these things that he may have done in which he trespasses. This verse corresponds to verse 516. In both instances, the priest makes atonement for the offender, and he is forgiven for the wrong he has done. Again, as in the previous chapter, the entire process looks forward to the work of Jesus Christ for all of the same offenses which we have committed against our fellow man, our society, and our God. In the end, our offenses are ultimately offenses against him. As I said, every one of these sacrifices that we have seen and that we're going to see, every one of them points to Jesus Christ perfectly. Most of them were explained already. These ones I'm going through rather quickly. I defrauded my neighbor, but I have taken it to heart. I did him wrong when I should have been upright. Now it is time I make a new start. A new day now ends the anxious, sleepless night. No more will I swear falsely. I will pay for what I have done. And to the Lord I will offer a ram to set things right. Against him I have sinned, he, the offended one. But my offering will end this miserable plight. My high priest will make atonement for me. I will be made right because of my Lord. I am trusting in Jesus to once and forever set me free. I have faith in the truth of his marvelous word. Our second thought today is the law of the burnt offering, which is verses 8 through 13. Verse 8, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, again, after just a few verses, an entirely new section is introduced, which will include the laws for the burnt, grain, sin, trespass, and peace offerings, which have all been laid out already. One might wonder, why are these details given now instead of in those chapters when they were highlighted before? The reason is that up until now, the details showed the people the circumstances which necessitated bringing an offering and how it was to be done. Now the directions are given for the priests how they are to actually conduct their duties on behalf of the people. Many scholars claim that this is where the chapter should actually begin and that verses 1 through 7 should belong to chapter 5. But there's no reason to conclude this. Verses 1 through 7 were their own section. Their placement here is therefore not at all uncalled for. The divisions are logical and they're orderly as they are compiled in the Christian canon. Verse 9, command Aaron and his sons saying, the directions from the Lord are now to be relayed as a commandment to Aaron and his sons. The intent is that until the next major section 
everything that will be spoken is a responsibility of theirs. This section will take us all the way to verse 721, when the children of Israel are again the addressees from the Lord. Verse 9 continues, this is the law of the burnt offering. The term, this is the law of, will be seen at the beginning of each section right through until verse 721, all of which are spoken to Aaron and his sons. After that, instructions will be spoken again to the children of Israel. Each section is a part of a larger set of instructions which the Lord is giving to these priests. Verse 9 continues, The burnt offering shall be on the hearth upon the altar all night until morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. This first type of offering, the burnt offering, is the one detailed in Exodus 29. It is the daily lamb offerings which were offered in the morning and then in the afternoon at a time known as between the evenings. They were to be offered every day without fail, and they pointed in a marvelous way to the work of Jesus Christ on the day of his cross. If you missed that sermon, or if you've forgotten it, it is time for you to brush up on it by reviewing it once again. It was a marvelous passage pointing to the work of Christ, and I'll give you just a hint of it. The first offering happened at a certain time in the morning. The second one happened at a time in the Hebrew Bible called Between the Evenings. It's a term only used when speaking about something coming in the cross of Christ, and that first offering in the morning was the time that Jesus' passion began on the day of his crucifixion, and that afternoon offering occurred when he was nailed to the cross and died. So everything about that lamb offering, the one in the morning and the one in the afternoon, points specifically, directly to the work of Christ. It's a beautiful passage to look at. The last sacrifice on the altar each day was one of the lambs of this burnt offering, and the first offering upon the altar each next day was again to be this daily lamb offering. It was to be kept burning all night, right up until the morning, and then the next offering was to be made. The fire was never to go out, but it was to be kept burning perpetually. The reason for this is that the fire was sanctified by the Lord at the consecration of the altar. After that, the same fire, sanctified by him, was to consume all future sacrifices from that point on out. This will be seen in just a few more chapters. In Leviticus chapter 9, it says this, Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all of the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This then is a picture of the eternal fire of the Lord consuming the sin of man. It is either done on behalf of man by Christ, or it is done to man in the lake of fire. Either way, sin will be judged, and the fire is that from the Lord himself. Verse 10, And the priest shall put on his linen garment and his linen trousers. He shall put on his body and take up the ashes of the burnt offering, which the fire has consumed on the altar, and he shall put them beside the altar. The specificity for the priest to put on his linen garments is not unnecessary. The ashes were a part of the holy offering of the daily sacrifices. Therefore, the person doing the labor of removing the ashes was to be attired properly for this task. The linen garment that he was to wear is described by a new word in scripture here. It is mad. It would come from a full-length robe. And the trousers are undergarments, which would come from a word which gives the sense of hiding. The linen that they are made of is the Hebrew word bad. It is probably from the word badad, meaning shoots. Thus one gets the idea of divided fibers that are woven together. The nakedness of the priests was to be covered in order to reflect purity and holiness instead of indecency. 
A sense of the holiness of the duties was to be reflected in the wearing of this attire. In these garments, he was to gather up the ashes of the burnt offering and then place them by the altar. Verse 11, then he shall take off his garments, put on other garments, and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The holy garments were to be worn in the sanctuary and for the holy duties. However, he was not to go outside of the sanctuary with them. And so after gathering the ashes of the fat, he was to change into common garments where he would then carry them outside of the camp to a place which was not defiled in any way. No carcasses, no dung, or any other thing which could cause defilement was to be found in the place of the ashes where this fat was deposited. Verse 12, and the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. These words are given as a stern warning that while the ashes were being removed, the priest was ensured that the would ensure that the fire would not be quenched during the process. He was not to knock the still burning pieces of the offering which were fuel for the fire and thus caused the fire to go out. And then to stress this, it says, verse 12 continues, it shall not be put out. The word shall be put out is a new word in scripture, kabah. It means to extinguish. The same thought is restated in a new way. The fire was not to go out, but was to be kept burning always. It's a picture of the judgment of sin on man. It is a picture of the Lord's anger at sin. It's a picture of the lake of fire or the cross of Calvary. And the typology must be maintained. Verse 12 continues, And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order on it, and he shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. The fire that was left from the previous night was to be rekindled with wood each morning in preparation for the morning offering. When that lamb was sacrificed, it was then laid on the wood in its regular order as prescribed, and at any time peace offerings were offered, the fat of those, as previously detailed, was to be burnt on it as well. The fire then was to be continuously fueled by the fire provided by the congregation and by the sacrifices of these daily offerings. And then, once again, the strict warning is given. Verse 13, a fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. There is no exception. When the altar was moved, the fire was to be kept burning. From day to day and year to year, the same fire that was first sanctified by the Lord was to burn. It is his fire of judgment and only his fire. No strange fire was to be introduced because only the Lord's judgment upon sin is acceptable. The repetition is intended to show us this truth. All judgment is of the Lord. His judgment upon our sin in Christ is eternally effective or his judgment upon man's sins will be eternally applied. This is seen in Isaiah chapter 66 where the same word, kabah, which was used in both verse 11 and 13 is used. Here's what it says in Isaiah 66. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me for their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. That word kabah, they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. A lamb precious and pure is given for to my God, I desire to provide my very best. He has brought me to the place of abundant living, and to please him is my heart-filled quest. How good and pleasant it is to offer the Lamb. I pray that he is pleased with the condition of my heart. I love the Lord God, the great I am, and so to him, this precious Lamb, I do impart. May the Lord accept this offering in my place and look with favor upon me as I go my way. May the Lord turn to me his glorious, shining face, and may he bless my steps each and every day. 
Our third thought is the law of the grain offering. It's verses 14 through 23. Verse 14, this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it on the altar before the Lord. The directions here are a close repeat of Leviticus 2, 1 through 3, but with some additions as well. The Hebrew says that the grain offering was to be offered before the Lord and before the altar, not on the altar as the New King James Version reads. Further, conducting this duty was limited to the sons of Aaron meaning any of the descendants of him from that point on who were ordained as priests. Verse 15, he shall take from it his handful of the fine flour of the grain offering with its oil and all the frankincense which is on the grain offering and shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma as a memorial to the Lord. These words are a close repeat of Leviticus 2, 2. All of the symbolism, as we saw, points to Christ. If you didn't see those sermons, go back and watch them. You'll be amazed, all right? The fine flour, the oil, the frankincense, all of it is given as anticipatory pictures of the coming work of Jesus Christ. It is he and his work which is ultimately the true and sweet aroma as a memorial to the Lord. Verse 16, And the remainder of it Aaron and his son shall eat with unleavened bread. It shall be eaten in a holy place in the court of the tabernacle of meeting. They shall eat it. The word with does not belong here. The remainder of the grain offering was not to be eaten with unleavened bread. Rather, it was to be eaten as unleavened bread. If your Bible says with, make a note of it. The grain offering was to be made into unleavened cakes and then eaten in a holy place. Only males could eat this as it was deemed as a most holy offering. However, any male who was ceremonially defiled could not partake of this offering. Verse 17, it shall not be baked with leaven. This shows that the word with in the previous verse is incorrect. The remainder of the offering was not to be baked with leaven. It was to be eaten as unleavened bread. The reason is, verse 17 continues, I have given it as their portion of my offerings made by fire. It is most holy, like the sin offering and the trespass offering. Notice the use of the first person here. The Lord claims this offering as his, but he gave it to the priests as their portion. Thus it is considered Kodesh Kadashim, or Holy of Holies. As leaven pictures sin, there was to be no leaven mixed with this most holy offering. Verse 18, all the males among the children of Aaron may eat it. It shall be a statute forever in your generations concerning the offerings made by fire to the Lord. The words are specific, and they exclude any female, and they also exclude anyone outside of the priesthood of Aaron and his sons from partaking in this offering. This was to be a statute forever, according to the time of the continuance of this covenant. The term forever, olam in Hebrew, simply means to the vanishing point. It does not mean eternally. In Christ, the law is ended, and the prohibitions no longer apply. However, as there are seven years left for Israel under the Old Covenant, according to Daniel chapter 9, this then is a prohibition which will be in effect during those final seven years as they work to try to make their way back to God and instead they eventually will call on Jesus Christ and he will return to save them. Wonderful things and they're coming probably in the span of our lifetime. Verse 18 continues, everyone who touches them must be holy. There are two views on these words. The first is that only someone who is holy or set apart could touch these offerings. The second is that if someone touched them, they became holy. If the latter is true, and which seems to be the case, it means that any common person who touched them would become devoted to the Lord. 
as they had no right to the priestly privileges, it would mean a life filled with inconveniences because of their transgression. Verse 19, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this introduces a new section within the laws of, which began in verse 9, and they continue the laws of the grain offering. But the instructions are solely for the anointed priest concerning the grain offerings which apply to him, not those of the general congregation. Verse 20, this is the offering of Aaron and his sons, which they shall offer to the Lord beginning on the day when he is anointed. The wording here definitely needs to be explained. Aaron was appointed and he was anointed, and the ordination process took seven days to complete. During that time, this offering was not made. It only took effect upon completion of his ordination and from that time forwards. The term on the day then is speaking of the time frame of the ordination. Upon completion of that time frame, the offerings were to be made day by day. Verse 20 continues, one-tenth of an ephah, fine flour, as a daily grain offering, half of it in the morning and half of it at night. One-tenth of an ephah is an omer, or as much as a person would eat in a single day. This was to be offered each day as a grain offering to the Lord, and it was to be divided into one portion in the morning and the second in the evening. The term here for night is not the same as the time of day of the lamb, which was sacrificed in a couple verses ago. This word means precisely in the evening. Verse 21, it shall be made in a pan with oil. When it is mixed, you shall bring it in. The baked pieces of the grain offering you shall offer for a sweet aroma to the Lord. The wording here is very precise, and it was solely the responsibility of the high priest to accomplish this task each day. He was to use a flat pan like a griddle, mix it with oil, and bake the pieces before offering them to the Lord on the altar. Jewish tradition says that he made six pieces in the morning and six at night, being the same number as the bread of presence, but this is not included in scripture. The word for mixed here is rabak. It's found only three times in scripture, and all three are pertaining to this same process. It gives the sense of soaking bread in oil for the purpose of frying it. Verse 22, the priest from among his sons who is anointed in his place shall offer it. It is a statute forever to the Lord. The meaning here is that this duty each day rested solely with the high priest. Whoever succeeded him would then assume this particular duty. This is the meaning of who is anointed in his place. It was only the high priest's duty. There was but one anointed high priest at a time. Nothing is said about what was done if this high priest was either sick or incapacitated. And this does not seem to give the high priest any chance of going on vacation, even for a weekend, for his entire life. The duty was his. It was done twice a day, and it was done by him until he was succeeded by a new high priest. This was to continue on as long as the law remained in effect. As Christ is the fulfillment of this practice and the initiator of the new covenant, the words forever to the Lord point to him having accomplished this now, once and forever. Verse 22 continues, it shall be wholly burned. The other grain offerings brought by the people had a memorial portion, a handful taken out and presented to the Lord on the altar. After that, the rest belonged to the priests for their use. On the other hand, this offering had to be kalil taketar, or wholly burned as incense. The reason for this is that it would be unseemly to make an offering to the Lord and then partake in it. And as he was the highest official, the offering could not be passed down to a lower station from him. 
it was solely the property of the Lord, and it was to be wholly burnt upon the altar as a sweet aroma to him. This offering, which is not a bloody offering, was not intended for the expiation or the taking away of sin, but rather it was a type of the fruits of sanctification. Again, it looks forward to Christ. As the daily sacrificed lamb was a type of his cross as a perfect sin offering, this is a type of his perfect life lived wholly to God. Verse 23, for every grain offering for the priest shall be wholly burned, it shall not be eaten. Again, the prohibition is repeated as a type of emphasis. The grain offering of the priest belonged to the Lord, not to the priest. In picture, it is the priest living for the Lord, not for himself. As he is a type of Christ, it is emblematic of Christ living for God and not for himself. He yielded to his father, being literally saturated with the Holy Spirit, just as this bread was, saturated in oil. This is what is seen in this daily grain offering of the high priest. What will it take to please the Lord? How much work will do? When will my deeds be enough? I think I've satisfied him through and through, but then I ponder about my life, all the bad stuff. And then I see the bad outweighs the good. And so I do a bit more, hoping it will be enough. But the nagging sensation makes it understood that doing wrong makes the good disappear like a puff. And then I heard that he had done it all for me. Jesus' works were perfect. God deemed it enough. Like frankincense, his life was accepted. How can it be? His works are sufficient to cover all my bad stuff. Our fourth thought today is the law of the sin offering. It's verses 24 through 30. Verse 24, also the Lord spoke to Moses saying, the word also here is inappropriate. It is the exact same words as have been seen at the beginning of each section. It should simply read, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, just as it has each time. However, though it is a new direction from the Lord, it still continues the same major section, which began in verse eight and nine, which are commandments directly to Aaron and his sons. This section expands on the instructions given in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 25. Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, the sin offering shall be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. The place where the burnt offering is killed is specified in Leviticus 1, verse 3, as being at the door of the tent of meeting. But this properly means at the altar, and specifically on its north side. It is the sacrifice at the altar which allows entry through the door. The two are linked together as one. A sin offering is considered one which falls into the class of most holy offerings. As Albert Barnes notes about this term being applied here, he says, The flesh of the victim which represented the sinner for whom atonement was now made was to be solemnly and most exclusively appropriated by those who were appointed to mediate between the sinner and the Lord. The far-reaching symbolism of the act met its perfect fulfillment in the one mediator who took our nature upon himself, meaning Jesus Christ. Verse 26, the priest who offers it for sin shall eat it. The symbolism here is that the priest thus bore the sin of the person that brought the offering. This is explicitly stated in Leviticus 10, verse 17. Thus it looks forward to Christ bearing the sin of his people. In practical day-to-day -day life, it also was a means of providing for the priests who had no inheritance of their own. Unfortunately, the symbolism of the priests bearing the sin of the people was abused by them when they went on to revel in their own sins. This is seen in Hosea chapter 4. 
The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They eat up the sin of my people, speaking of the priests. They set their heart on their iniquity, and it shall be like people, like priests. So I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. What do you do when you go to the tabernacle or the temple in Jerusalem and you say, I'm bringing this animal in to take care of my sins? And then the priest sacrifice it and he eats it bearing your sins and then he goes out and commits sins. What does that mean about your offering? God can't accept it, right? Because he's supposed to be bearing your sins. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Every single thing that we see in these sacrifices, which seem obscure, they seem tedious, they don't seem relevant to anything, points to what Jesus did for us, which these people could not do. They were fallible human men who ended up in the grave because death consumed them. Jesus Christ did not. He came out of the grave. This is what we're seeing in these things, and we have to remember this as we're looking at these precious verses that the Lord has put in his word. Verse 26 continues, In a holy place it shall be eaten in the court of the tabernacle of meeting. The court is everything outside of the tent itself, but within the hangings which surround the tent, forming the courtyard. The priests would have a place set apart where they would gather and they'd eat their meals within this courtyard. Verse 27, Everyone who touches his flesh must be holy. The same terminology is used here as before. Either the person touching the flesh must be holy, or the person who touches the flesh will become holy, meaning devoted to the Lord. Scholars like to punch it out over which is correct, but the latter does seem to be more likely. This seems even more so because of what is next said about the blood. Verse 27 continues, And when its blood is sprinkled on any garment, you shall wash that on which it was sprinkled in a holy place. Any blood which was inadvertently sprinkled on any garment needed to be washed off there in a holy place designated for such things. This was done to show the high and precious value of the blood of the sacrifice, which was not to be taken, excuse me, into any profane place or among anything common or unclean. The blood of the sin offering is typical of the precious blood of Christ, which is to be treated with the highest respect and regard for what it signifies in the life of the believer. Verse 28, But the earthen vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken. The cheres, or earthen vessel, is introduced here. It is any pot or potsherd made of earthenware. If such a vessel was used for boiling the sacrifices, it was to be broken, because it could absorb the fat of the offering into it. Later in Leviticus, the exact opposite will necessitate the breaking of earthen vessels. If they touch anything defiled... They were likewise to be broken. In the Bible, earthenware jars are used many times to symbolize people, and it is the Lord who is the potter making the jar. The lesson should not go unlearned. The holy is not to be mixed with the profane, and we, as earthen jars, as Paul specifically calls us in the New Testament, are to be filled with that which is holy. After that, we are to keep ourselves from being mixed with that which is profane. Verse 28 continues, And if it is boiled in a bronze pot, it shall be both scoured and rinsed in water. A pot of bronze would not be subject to soaking up defilement, and so it would need to be scoured and then rinsed to purify it. Both words, scour and rinse, are introduced into the Bible here. One gives the sense of polishing, and the other gives the sense of overflowing with water in order to cleanse. As bronze signifies judgment in Scripture, there is a picture of sin being judged and cleansed away. In such a case, the bowl could be reused. Such was not the case with a vessel of clay. The typology is impressive. 
And it shows that the Lord has our sanctification and holy living on his mind, even with the vessels used in sacrificial rites and customs. Verse 29, all the males among the priests may eat it. It is most holy. The meat of the sin offering was allowed to be eaten, not only by the officiating priest, but by any of the priests and any of their male children. Despite the high honor of this for the priests, the New Testament says that believers in Christ have an even higher honor and that we have an altar from which those who served at the tabernacle have no right to eat. We have partaken of what these types and shadows only prefigure in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. Verse 30 finishes our verses today, but no sin offering from which any of the blood is brought into the tabernacle of meeting to make atonement in the holy place shall be eaten, it shall be burned in the fire. This takes us back to the sin offerings for the high priest or the congregation as a whole, which were seen in Leviticus chapter 4, and which will be seen for the sin offering on the day of atonement as well. Those rites are found in Leviticus chapter 16, and I cannot wait to get to that chapter. It is the most marvelous picture of Christ that you will ever imagine in Leviticus 16. Any such sin offering had its blood brought into the holy place of the tent of meeting. Their atonement was made by sprinkling seven times and upon the horns of the altar of the incense before the Lord. Such an animal was not to be eaten by the priests, as it would then symbolize the sin returning to the one who needed atonement in the first place. Again, as we keep seeing, the verses show us the fallible nature of the law of Moses. Not because the law was with fault, but because man is with fault, and the law is above man's ability to meet its requirements. The symbolism keeps showing us this. Each step of the process shows the fallible nature of the common people and the fallible nature of the priestly class as well. Anyone who has to sacrifice for himself is in need of that sacrifice. And any sacrifice that cannot be partaken of by the offerer implies that what has occurred with that sacrifice becomes beyond the holiness of that same offerer. In order for perfection to be realized under the law, there must be one who is already perfect. Thus, he would need no sacrifices for his own sins. And he could then fulfill the law in this capacity. In fulfilling the law, he then could give his life in exchange for the sins committed under the law, not as an offering for himself, but as an offering for others. And as sin under the law brings death, but because he had no sin of his own, then death could not hold him. One receives wages for what he has earned. If he did not earn the wages of death, then death could not be a final payment for his works. The state of death must release him. And we see that in Acts chapter 2, where Peter said it is impossible that he could have stayed in the grave, right? And in his release, coming out of the grave, our release would also be realized because he had died in exchange for our sins. If you just think each step through to its logical conclusion, it is more than amazing. It is perfect. What God has done in and through Jesus Christ is absolutely perfect, and it is ours to be received by a mere act of faith. This is the most marvelous part of the entire deal. The work is done, and it is fully effective to complete the task of reconciliation for us, and all God asks for is simple faith. I believe that what you have done is all sufficient for what I need, and I receive that by faith. In that act, you were set on a new path and are freed from the constraints of the law, which couldn't save anyone. 
I would hope that you are seeing this more and more and more with each new passage that we look at. God has been doing something absolutely marvelous in the stream of human existence, all leading up to the glory which is revealed in Jesus Christ our Lord. And now, that is leading up to a new glory which lies ahead for those who have received this marvelous offer. Call on Christ. Be reconciled to God through his shed blood today. If you have never done it, today is the day of salvation. Now is the time of the Lord's favor. We don't know when we're going to die. As Bob said earlier at the beginning of the service, we're all destined to die. We don't like to think about it. We like to ignore it. We think, I'll be here tomorrow. Every single one of us could die in a minute if a plane lands on this building, right? Or somebody could drive in the front door and it would wipe out the back row. I'd be okay. (laughs) You understand what I'm saying? We are all one breath away. We are all one breath away from dying. And we don't know when that day is going to come. So I would ask that you would consider these sin offerings, consider what they picture, consider that they cannot save anything, but they picture the one who can. And by giving your life to him, you will be saved and you will be completely saved. As the book of Hebrews says, he is the author of eternal salvation. It is done. Our closing verse today comes from Romans chapter 3, it's verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. The word propitiation there is mercy seat. He's the place of mercy. Through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Next week is Leviticus 7. It's verses 1 through 21. More things for the priest to do. It's entitled the mediator's duties. Part two. Part two. (laughs) That'll be our ninth Leviticus sermon. And I'll tell you this, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away. He can purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? I know, we've got a long poem ahead of us. It won't take that long, though. For those of you who have never been here before, I do a poem based on the verses that we've looked at, and I follow exactly the New King James Version. So if you have that version, you can almost follow word for word, and I just add in a little poetry to make it rhyme. But we've got uh, so far, you know, the first couple books of the Bible in poem form, and we're getting there with Leviticus slowly but surely. This is entitled The Mediator's Duties. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, these are the words he was relaying. If a person sins and commits a trespass against the Lord by lying to his neighbor about what was delivered to him for safekeeping or about a pledge or about a robbery, or if he is extorted from his neighbor an action quite grim, or if he has found what was lost and lies concerning it and swears falsely in any one of these things that a man may do in which he sins, then it shall be because he has sinned and is guilty that he shall restore what was stolen or the thing which he has extorted or what was delivered to him for safekeeping or the lost thing which he found when it went unreported or all that about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore its full value, add one fifth more to it and give it to whomever it belongs on the day of his trespass offering as to you I submit. 
and he shall bring his trespass offering to the Lord, a ram without blemish from the flock, with your valuation. As a trespass offering to the priest, such is the set determination. So the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any one of these things that he may have done in which he trespasses, when upon himself guilt he brings. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This he next began relaying. Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering, as to you I submit. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth upon the altar all night until morning, and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment, he shall do this thing, and his linen trousers he shall put on his body and take up the ashes of the burnt offering, which the fire is consumed on the altar, and he shall put them beside the altar. In this he shall not falter. Then he shall take off his garments, put on other garments. Yes, the others he shall replace and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. And the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not be put out. So as to you, I submit. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order on it. And he shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings, no doubt. A fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. This is the law of the grain offering. According to this word, the sons of Aaron shall offer it on the altar before the Lord. He shall take from it his handful of fine flour of the grain offering with its oil and the frankincense, which is on the grain offering, and shall burn it on the altar for a sweet aroma as a memorial to the Lord. So shall be this proffering. And the remainder of it Aaron and his sons shall eat with unleavened bread. It shall be eaten in a holy place. In the court of the tabernacle of meeting, they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven, such shall be the case. I have given it as their portion of my offerings made by fire. It is most holy, like the sin offering and the trespass offering too. All the males among the children of Aaron may eat it. Follow now as I am instructing you. It shall be a statute forever in your generations concerning the offerings made by fire to the Lord. Everyone who touches them must be holy, so shall it be according to this word. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, These are the words he began relaying. This is the offering of Aaron and his sons, which they shall offer to the Lord, beginning on the day when he is anointed, on that day according to my word. One-tenth of an ephah of fine flour is a daily grain offering. Half of it in the morning and half of it at night shall be this proffering. It shall be made in a pan with oil. When it is mixed in it, you shall bring the baked pieces of the grain offering you shall offer. For a sweet aroma to the Lord, such is this offering. The priest from among his sons who is anointed in his place shall offer it. It is a statute forever to the Lord. It shall be wholly burned as to you, I submit. For every grain offering for the priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. Follow these instructions you have learned. Also the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, These continued words he was relaying. Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, This is the law of the sin offering according to this word. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, the sin offering shall be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. This is how it is to be. The priest who offers it, for sin shall eat it. In a holy place it shall be eaten, so shall it be. In the court of the tabernacle of meeting, everyone who touches his flesh must be holy. And when its blood is sprinkled on any garment, you shall wash that on which it was sprinkled in a holy place. But the earthen vessel in which it is boiled shall be broken. Such instructions shall be the case. And if it is boiled in a bronze pot, it shall be both scoured and rinsed in water, so shall it be. All the males among the priests may eat it. It is most holy." But no sin offering from which any of the blood is brought into the tabernacle of meeting to make atonement in the holy place shall be eaten. It shall be burned in the fire. Of them there shall be no eating. 
Lord God, in ourselves, we are not acceptable to you, but you have made a way for it to come about. Through the offering of your Son, who is faithful and true, we can approach you without fear or doubt. We now can come home to you once again. We are reconciled through what Christ alone has done. May we be willing to share this marvel with all men that God has given us new life through his Son. Praises to God who has done this most marvelous thing for us. All praises to God through our glorious Lord Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, how good it is to be in your presence and to share in your word with other people who want to know the intricacies of what it says and what it's teaching us. It is a marvelous word, and it has that one theme which calls out in every single detail, whether it's Genesis with Abraham, whether it's Leviticus with sacrifices, or whether it's Samson in the book of Judges or any other passage, it is all telling us a story about Jesus. How wonderful that is to search this out and to know that this is true and that we have all of the information we will ever need to be secure in your presence by reading this word. Thank you. Thank you for the surety we have by simple faith in what he has done. Lord God, we do have prayer needs that uh, we mentioned at the beginning of the service. We've got Nick in California who's facing great trials. We've got Paul who is just getting back on his feet, and we're grateful for that. We're thankful for Graham out in Scotland who has uh, uh, once again come home and is doing well after so long in the hospital. Lord, we have um, others, uh, uh, Don, who is going through his chemotherapy, and uh, uh, I'm forgetting some right now, Lord, but you know who they are. You know that uh, we care about them, and we pray for them, and we ask for uh, good blessings for the people of this congregation, both now and online, and those who watch by YouTube in the week ahead. Please take care of them, meet their needs, and fill them with wonderful blessings that their hearts are overflowing, and they can share those blessings with others. Help us to be proper stewards of our time and of your word, pursuing you always. And we love you and we do cherish you. And we do so because of what you've done through Jesus. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen.